John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word for us tonight. If you would, I'd like for you to pray with me before we look at it, and then we'll jump in, okay? So let's pray together. Um, Father, you know that um, people come into this room in a lot of different um, places tonight. Some people come in feeling uh, guilty. Some people feeling, uh, come in feeling uh, bored and uh, tired and exhausted. Some people come in feeling... Uh, glad. Some people come in here feeling like this is the last place on earth where they would ever find themselves in some sort of Christian environment. And Father, in light of where everybody is tonight, I pray that you would uh, meet us and that you would open up our eyes to see this text in a real way. And so would you come and would you help us and would you teach us? And we pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. We are Um, trying to raise this question this semester. Basically, how is Jesus relevant to our lives? And the way that we've gone about trying to answer that question is look at places in the Bible where Jesus is interacting with real people and in real particular situations. And in this situation uh, is a very famous story in the Bible where Jesus changes the water into wine, right? But here's what's interesting is that this passage uh, is, is probably famous for the wrong reasons. Uh, it should be famous for something else because this story, unlike a lot of stories that, that have to do with Jesus, this gives us a, a direct window into why Jesus is even in the Bible to begin with. I mean, this brings you right into the center of the heart of Jesus' purpose, Jesus' mission, what he is about, So that's what I want to try to show you tonight, is why this passage, why this story is so integral into even figuring out who Jesus is and what he has to do. So, okay, to try to figure out what that is, I want to just approach this by trying to answer three different questions tonight, okay? I want to answer where Jesus is, what Jesus does, and why he does it, okay? So the where, the what, and the why. Where he is, what he does, why he does it, okay? So let's look at these one at a time. Here's the first one. Where is Jesus? It's, uh, you know, to answer that question, we need to see that the basic problem of this whole story, the whole problem that the story hinges around is this. They're at a wedding and they've run out of wine. Now, of course, some of you are thinking, 
what's the big deal? I mean, this, is, this has happened to you before, right? I mean, where you have something, people over your house, and you just you know, didn't think through the amounts, and so you run out of food or whatever. And this happened to us last semester. We had some of y'all freshmen over for freshman dinner at our house. Some of you probably remember this. And uh, we ran out of chili. We just didn't think through the amounts. And so it's like no harm, no foul. We throw together some grilled cheeses and, you know, you know done. It's not that big of a deal, right? So what's the big you know, they're, they're out of wine. Well, you're thinking in your mind an American wedding, but don't think that way because what you're thinking is, okay, a wedding is, you know, you, you go, you get a chapel, you know, service on a Sunday or a Saturday afternoon or evening. Then you go over to the reception hall, eat finger foods, dance the YMCA and dance to Hey Ya. And then, you know, after a couple of hours, you go home and that's that. This wedding, weddings in this day culturally would have lasted a week. I mean, it is a week of feasting and drinking and laughing and dancing. And it was like a full-orbed party all week long. I mean, everybody was there. Everybody in the village, everybody in the surrounding area was there. I mean, look at verse uh, 1 and 2. Jesus' mom was invited. Jesus was invited. His whole entourage of disciples were invited. I mean, they weren't even from this village. And you see, everybody is there. This is just normal. So here's the other thing that you have to realize. The groom would have been responsible for planning and paying for everything that was on his shoulders. So when the wine runs out, this is a major party foul. Here's why. This is a huge deal. First, it would have meant complete humiliation from the town because remember the entire town was there so this was like this central social event for this village it's not like they had a movie theater to go to it was like weddings were the thing and this guy blew it so it would have meant total humiliation from the town i mean actually when when jesus's mom comes up to jesus and says hey they ran out of wine the reason she probably knows is because everybody's talking about it it's like dude they just ran out of wine this party's over this sucks (laughs) So that would have been the first thing, is that it would have meant total humiliation. The second thing is that it would have meant disappointment from his father-in-law-to-be, which is not the person you want to disappoint. Because what this means is uh, you know, it, it showed a lack of planning. It showed a lack of thoughtfulness. And uh, it, it even showed uh, maybe a hint of stinginess, you know, like where the daughter uh, or, or where the father is basically saying, so my daughter is not worth it for you to fork out the extra cash to keep the wine flowing and to keep the party going. I mean, you see how this kind of looks. It's, you know, you don't want to disappoint your father-in-law, and he does. Uh, and then here's the third thing. It meant disappointment. It meant uh, humiliation. And it, it could even mean that there would be legal charges pressed against him. Because some of the, some of the sources that I, that I looked at said that it's basically willful deception. I mean, he, he's... he's committed to providing for this new bride of his. And here he can't even foot the bill for this party for for the week. So it's like, you know, this family could have pressed charges if they wanted to. So you have to see everything is at stake for this poor groom. His reputation is at stake. His relationship with his future father-in-law is at stake. His marriage is at stake. I mean, he could even have legal charges. The party is clearly over, right? Here's the thing. Whether you realized it or not, everybody in this room can relate to that problem. Because think about it. He does not have what he needs. And as a result, 
His life is spinning out of control. And we, as well, do not have what we need in our lives spin out of control as a result as well, right? I know that some of you wake up every day thinking to yourself, I do not have the figure that I need. Others of you say, I don't have the grades that I need. Or I don't have the money that I need. I don't have the friends or the family that I need. I don't have the boyfriend or the girlfriend that I need. I don't have the job that I need. Our lives are marked, just like this story, by emptiness and need. There's this um, uh, great song by Ray LaMontagne called Empty. If you've heard it, um, it's unbelievably emotionally honest and and raw. And so I I just want to read you just a couple of the last few lines of this song because it's just so, he just articulates what everybody feels. Here's what he says. It's the hurt I hide that fuels the fire inside me. Will I always feel this way, so empty, so estranged? Will I always feel this way, so empty and so estranged? Our lives, just like the story, are, are, are marked by emptiness and marked by need. But here's the thing that I want you to see. Where is Jesus in this story? He is right in the center of it. He is right in the middle of need. That is where he has come to dwell and to make his living, right in the middle of our need and our emptiness. And here's the question. Do you think of Jesus that way? Do you see Jesus like that when you think about your own life? When you say, okay, I know those places of emptiness. You know, when you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and that fresh wound of emptiness and that void or, or when you um, uh, have a fallout with a friend because they've betrayed you or hurt you and you just feel totally isolated. Or when you just feel completely lonely here at school, away from your friends and your family back home, or because you're looking in on everybody else having the perfect relationship that you don't have. When you have those moments of emptiness and need, do you see and do you believe that that is precisely where Jesus is in your life? Because the good news of this passage is that he is. That's exactly where he is. I mean, just think about it. This is the first thing he does, and he rolls right up into the middle of a situation dominated by emptiness and need. That is where Jesus goes. And that's where he goes in your life, too. That's the first thing that you have to see, where he is. He's right in the middle of it. He's right in the middle of emptiness and need. But here's the second thing. What does Jesus do with it? What does Jesus do with that emptiness? Let's look at the second thing, all right? After... Jesus' mother informs him of the situation. What he does in verses 6 through 9 is he says, hey, you see those big stone jars over there? I want you to fill them with water. And then somehow by the end of the story, it just turns into wine. I mean, it's kind of like, whoa, what just happened? And uh, uh, so what I want to do is I just want to focus in on how the text and how this story describes the wine. Two details. First, the quantity. If you saw in verse 6, Each stone jar, remember there are six of them, each one of them holds 20 to 30 gallons of liquid. So to be generous, that's 180 gallons of liquid. I did the math, and if you convert that into liters, that is uh, 680 liters. That would be like showing up to your friend's house 
with 340 two liters of cheer wine. And everybody, everybody's like, whoa. And you're like, oh, you're, oh, you're not that thirsty. Oh, okay. <laughs> or if you convert it again, which I did because I'm into math, that makes 920 bottles of wine. 920 bottles of wine. That's a lot. I mean, do you find that excessive? I mean, that, that would be like your friends are having a party and you roll up pulling a U-Haul trailer <laughs> packed to the brim with cases of wine and everybody's like, dude, I think you have a drinking problem. <laughs> you know? I mean, this is a lot of liquid. This is over-the-top abundance. This is a lot. That's the first detail that you have to see is just the quantity, the sheer quantity of it. But secondly, I want you to look at the quality of it. In, in, in verse 10, it explains that Jesus actually makes good wine. In, in verse 10, uh, uh, he has the master of the feast taste some of it. And the master of the feast was sort of like the master of, this, kind of, the master of ceremonies or sort of like the chief party coordinator. So they bring over this wine and this dude tastes it and is like, whoa, this is really good. And then it sort of explains that there was this custom at the time where you'd bring out the good stuff first and once everybody's taste buds began to get dulled, then they would conserve the good stuff and then bust out the cheaper stuff. And this dude's like, dude, you saved the, like the best stuff until the end. That's crazy. And here's what this means. Jesus isn't making like crappy box wine. He's not, he's not making PBR and Bud Light. This is good. This is like the most amazing, fullest, richest wine that he has just, you know, thrown on the scene. And yes, it is real alcoholic wine. I know that there uh, have, have been some people who have suggested, well, I think this is just grape juice. Um, you can text me about that. I'd be happy to talk more about that later. Or we can get coffee and I'll uh, prove you wrong. Um, <laughs> this is real wine that he's making. So the quantity is, is generous. The quality is exceptional. And, and here's what I want you to see. This is what Jesus does with our emptiness. Is he fills it with festive abundance. Festive, joyful, celebratory abundance. Jesus is here to party and to celebrate. He is out for your joy. You have to see that. And here is the question for you. Is that how you view Jesus? That he really is out for your joy? Or do you see Jesus as basically just like a total buzzkill? Where he's like, y'all stop having fun and get praying. I mean, I mean, this passage does not square with that. His critics in Matthew 11 called him a drunkard and a glutton. I don't think they just came up with those terms for any reason. It's because Jesus knew how to celebrate and knew how to have fun. Side note, I don't think Jesus ever got drunk. Here's why I think that. It's because the Bible clearly says drunkenness is sinful, and it clearly says Jesus was sinless. I don't think he ever got drunk. But I do think he drank alcohol, absolutely. And I think he knew how to enjoy it and to celebrate well. Side note, over. I want to talk to the Christians in the room for a second. For those of you who identify yourselves as Christians, because I think deep down you don't really believe this. I think deep down you don't really believe that Jesus is out for your joy, that Jesus is out for your gladness. And here's why I think that. Because some of you I know, 
Know that you are in God's will when you feel the most miserable. It's like, okay, I have option A that's going to make me feel comfortable, and I have option B that's going to make me feel uncomfortable. God wants me to do option B. Do you see how messed up that is? To just assume automatically every time that God wants you miserable. I mean, you can't make a blanket statement and say he wants this or that. I mean, sometimes he does want you uncomfortable. I'm not saying that. But just to assume automatically that he wants you uncomfortable and miserable, I mean, what does that say about what you think about who God is and, what Jesus, and who Jesus is? He is out for your joy. He is out for your gladness. Some of y'all are familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It is, a, it is a document that some smart theologians threw together in the 1600s to try to summarize the entire Bible in sort of concise ways. And what they would do is they would pose questions and then try to answer those questions in light of sort of the corpus of biblical data. And the first question is this. What is the chief end of man? Which is old school fancy language for what is man's ultimate purpose? Why is he here? Why is humanity here? Why do we exist? And here's the answer. Man's chief end, man's ultimate purpose, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the answer. You are, that's why you exist, is for God's glory and for joy, to be bursting at the seams forever with joy. That is why you exist. And some of you Christians in the room, even right now, are trying to think, this cannot be true. Because, Matt, I know what you're doing. You are making Christianity sound like it's just this party and this game, and it's not. It is discipline, and it is war, and it is sacrifice, and it is dying to self. I mean, Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, right? Jesus didn't say, pick up your wine glass and follow me. <laughs> but here's, here's, here's the thing, is that you're right. You're right. The Christian life does involve sacrifice and death and dying to self. But those are means to an end. And this passage is talking about the end. The whole point of all of that is joy. It is festive, overflowing, abundant joy. If you don't believe me, you're going to be very surprised when you get to heaven and realize it is a party. But let me talk to the, to the rest of you. To, to those of you in this room who don't identify yourselves as Christians, for those of you who you know, um, look at this and don't know what to think about all this, I, I just want to talk to you for a second because... Some of you, I know, grew up in the church, and then you got to college, and you realized, yeah, I, I think I'm kind of done with the whole church Christianity thing. And so you just kind of peace out on it. And, and, if, and if anyone were to ask you why, your reason would be, well, it's because, I mean, I'm in college, I just want to have fun. I mean, Christianity is, is too restricting. It's basically just this sophisticated guilt trip where it's, uh, it all basically boils down to suck it up, just say no, don't hang out with the wrong crowd. I mean, I'm here to have fun. And, and to that, here's what I want to say. Do you even know what you've rejected? Because does this image of, of Jesus in the story square with your, your assumption of who he is and what he's about at all? If you're going to reject Christianity, at least do it intelligently. Because this passage is saying Jesus is out for your joy, for your greatest joy. And on top of that, he is here to eradicate everything that is messed up in the world and usher in a galaxy-wide party. That's what Jesus is about. So don't reject him on grounds that don't make sense with the biblical image of, of who he is and what he's here to do. So where is Jesus? 
He's right in the center of emptiness and need. What does he do with it? He fills it with festive abundance. But here's the last thing that I want you to see, okay? Because this gets really odd. The very last verse in this whole story says that uh, this was Jesus' first sign, his first miracle. This was sort of his coming out miracle where he says, okay, here I am. And you, and you think about it, it's like, really? This is what he chose to be his sort of coming out miracle as fixing a social problem at a party? Like, why? Why this? And that's the last question. Why? Why does Jesus do this? Before we close, I just I, I want to mention three reasons. I just want to highlight quickly three reasons why Jesus does this, and we're done. Here's the first reason. Jesus does this to make us clean. He does it to make us clean. See, when Jesus requests those stone jars, he, he specifically requests the jars that were used uh, by Jewish people for cleansing, for their purification rites. I mean, he didn't say, you know, grab me those mason jars or grab me this over there. He specifically asks for, to fill up those things. And here's the old purpose of what those things would do. They would fill those things up with water, and the Jewish uh, people would wash their hands with them before they would eat, or they would wash themselves off before they would go into the temple. And the assumption was is that they were... They were uh, morally filthy. It was sort of a symbolic thing that's saying, I need cleansing from sin. I need cleansing from sort of this moral filth. And so they would wash themselves off. And so when, what Jesus is doing is saying, hey, I want you to fill that up with water that I'm about to turn into wine. He's basically saying, you don't need those things anymore because I make you clean now. That stuff does not make you clean. That's what I'm here to do. And so now, instead of the old original purpose of what that is for, now we can fill those up with wine and we can celebrate because I am here and I'm the one that takes your moral filth and I make you clean. That's what I do. But I want you to see, that's, he doesn't just stop there because it, it, you know, if, we were just, if he just made us clean, we would kind of be like uh, Angela on The Office you know, who's like bleached white and clean and put together, but she's like the most unhappy character on the show where she's bitter and like judgmental and resentful, you know. He doesn't just stop at making us clean. Secondly, he, he has also come to make us glad. That's the second thing that you have to see. He comes to make us glad. In, in verse 11, John summarizes this whole story as a sign. Interesting word. Because you know how signs work, I hope. When you're driving down 221, and you see the sign that says that you're heading towards Asheville, you don't pull over the car and stop underneath the sign assuming that you've arrived in Asheville, right? You're like, Asheville sucks compared to what I thought it was going to look like. You know? No, the sign is, is merely pointing you in the right direction. And so that's what this thing is doing. It is saying, look, this whole story is merely pointing you towards something else. What is it, though? Well, the Bible from beginning to end summarizes and, and, and pictures salvation and blessing with the imagery of wine. just want to give you a few samples, and I included it in your little handout there so that you can take them up and look them up later and so you, you know, just don't take my word for it. But let me read you Isaiah 25, verse 6. Here's what it says. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. That is the Bible's picture of salvation, the picture of the new heavens and new earth. It is feasting with the best meats, the best wines. 
Let me read you the next one. Amos 9.13. By the way, these are all Old Testament references. It says this. This is amazing. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. Here's what that means. Basically, it's saying there's going to be this enormous harvest. Because you know how winemaking goes. As you plant seeds, it grows up over time, makes grapes. You harvest all the grapes, and then you put them in a big thing and stomp on them, tread them. You that, have y'all seen that YouTube video? You know what I'm talking about, where that lady's stomping and falls? Okay. <laughs> has nothing to do with this. That's just images in my head. So you stomp on the grapes, and that's, you know, that's what gets the juice out, and that's what makes the wine. This passage is saying there's so many grapes, so much stuff that they've just harvested, they're still stomping on them by the time it's, 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 it's due to plant the next round of seeds. It basically, it's saying they can't make the wine fast enough. That's the image of the new heavens and new earth of salvation. And then here's how this verse ends. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. This is saying there are going to be rivers of wine flowing from the mountains. Can you wrap your head around that? Rivers of wine flowing down the mountains. That is the picture. And then how does the Bible end? In Revelation 19 through 21 you get a wedding feast that is captured by celebration and by joy and by feasting and by drinking and by dancing. And that is the picture. The Bible ends with a party where you want to be. And here's what you have to see. The God of the Bible is a God who celebrates. And salvation is not this dull, boring, dry thing. It is joyful and it's worth a party. It's worth celebrating. That is the thing from beginning to end. And so this whole story is a sign. It is pointing you right into the heart of Jesus' mission. The whole reason Jesus is here is to take your emptiness and to fill it with celebratory, over-the-top abundance. He has come to make you clean, and he has come to make you glad. Here's the last thing. He's also come to make you his. That's the last thing that I want you to see. We sing this hymn here called Jesus I My Cross Have Taken. It's a great song, but one of the lines uh, is this, and you're going to laugh at um, the language of it. Oh, twere not in joy to charm me, were that joy unmixed with thee. And here's what that basically means. God doesn't just charm you with the prospect of joy. God doesn't just seduce you and say, hey, I can make you happy unless that happiness is always connected to him. It's never a joy that's unmixed with God. Meaning, God knows if you are going to be the most happiest, it means it has to be connected to him. You are happy in him. Now, here's, here's where I get all of this from this passage. In verse 3 and 4, the first time that you read it, it sounds really odd. Because Mary, Jesus' mom, comes up to Jesus and like, dude, they're out of wine. And Jesus goes... Woman, why are you involving me? It's not my time yet. It's not my hour yet. It'd be like you at, you know, like at Central and you're asking your friend to pass the salt and they're like, dude, it's not my time. <laughs> you're like, are you okay? Like, can I, can I help you? So what's, what's going on here? It's very bizarre. When Jesus is referring to his hour, he is referring to his death. 
That word hour, all throughout the Gospel of John, over and over and over, is, is referring to his death. I included it in your little sheet there. You can look them all up. John 7, 30, 8, 20, 12, 23, 27, 13, 1, 17, 1. There you go. Look it up. They're all about Jesus' hour, Jesus' death, which means here he is at a wedding thinking about his upcoming death on the cross, which is a little strange because when you're at a wedding, what are you typically thinking about? You're thinking about your wedding, right? You're thinking about uh, who you're going to marry, if it's ever even going to happen, what it's going to look like. You're not sitting there thinking about your death. And if you are, we should talk. (laughs) But here Jesus is at this wedding thinking about his death. Why? It's because his wedding day and his death day are the same. In order to get his bride, he knows that he is going to have to die for her. And who is his bride? It is you. It is the church. It is his people. So here's what's going on. All throughout the Bible, there is another image that wine takes. It doesn't just refer to salvation and blessing. It also refers to God's wrath, God's judgment. It's interesting. The same image has two almost contradictory meanings. And so all, you know, sometimes in the prophets and in Revelation, it talks about wine being drunk to the dregs, down to the bottom, that his enemies will drink the cup of his wrath. In Mark chapter 14, as Jesus is getting ready to go into the cross, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says this, Father, take this cup from me. Let this cup pass from me. What is he talking about? He's talking about the cup of judgment. Because he knows in order to receive his bride, in order to see his wedding day, he is going to have to first drink the cup of God's judgment for her because she's not clean yet. So what he does is when he goes and dies on the cross, he is experiencing the convergence of these two images. He is drinking the cup of God's wrath so that you can drink the sweet cup of God's blessing. He is standing in your place. He is dying for his bride because his wedding day and his death day are the same day. That's why he's thinking about it when he's at this wedding. He is thinking of you and he's thinking of me. He stands in the place of judgment so that when you put your faith and your trust in him, you get to stand in the place of blessing, in the place of salvation, in the place of this party. That is what is going on. He has come to make you clean. He's come to make you glad. And all of that means is that he has come to just make you his. But let me wrap up here. Because I know some of you are thinking, okay, how do I get in on this? Like, what do I have to do to to partake of this joy that is being offered? Two quick things, and then we're done, I promise. And I get these two things from uh, another pastor who's uh, a pastor up in New York City. His name is Tim Keller. He's a hero of mine. Here's what he says, and this is just brilliant. Here's the two things that we have to do. First thing is we have to admit that we're empty. Jesus doesn't just come along and like top you off or kind of fill you rest of the way up. You have to come to him and admit that you're empty. That I got nothing. And the promise of the gospel is that he will fill you up when you admit that. That's the first thing. It's just to admit that you're empty. And then here's the second thing. Take all the credit for what Jesus did. It's really interesting in, the, in this story. Uh, you think about it. This groom, this stupid groom, has done nothing but blow it. He's totally screwed it up. It's a huge party foul. And, and if, if you look in verse 9 and 10, the master of the feast, 
drinks this wine, and then goes to him and compliments him on this wine. He's like, dude, you have saved the most amazing wine till the end. And this dude did nothing. He's got nothing. He's totally blown it. He's screwed up the whole thing. And here, now everybody is celebrating him and applauding him for something he did not do. He's taking the credit for what Jesus has done. And that is a picture of what it means to be a Christian. You come with nothing, nothing but your emptiness. You've totally blown it. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you get all of the credit for his obedience, for his life, for his perfection, so that God looks at you now and says, well done, good and faithful servant. And you're like, I didn't do anything though. And that's the point. It's about what he has done. The good news of this passage is that when you put your faith in Jesus, he takes your emptiness and fills it with abundant festivity and celebration. So admit that you're empty and then take the credit for what Jesus has done. Let me pray. Father, you have come for our joy. People who are sad, people who are lonely, people who are broken. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see that you are committed to our good and to our happiness and that you know that we will never experience happiness apart from you and that you have made all of the arrangements necessary to bring us home, to bring us to you. I pray that you would give us a heart full of joy because of what Jesus has done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.